Good morning. Good morning. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. One of the things that, one of the teachings that um, encourages us uh, to practice is a list of the three requisites that we need to go along the path. And those three things are, first one is, teacher and a Dharma community to practice in necessary for the path. The second is an open and flexible mind. And the third one is material support, meaning body, breath, some food, things like that. Those three things are essential for the path according to the training and compassion slogans. open and flexible mind. And the next of those slogans about those three things is an uh, an elaboration of that, which is, don't lose track. Don't lose track of those three things and their necessity. The open and flexible mind, the Dharma community and teacher, and the uh, material support. And elaborating on those material supports, basically, when we look closely, it really is easy to see that no matter what we think, we have the support that we need. We have it all the time to do, to do the path, especially if we have the community and, and teachers to help us. Um, when the Buddha was alive and woke up so spectacularly that he continued talking about it for 40 more years, He was a talkative guy. (laughs) But at first, apparently, he he decided not to teach for about 49 days. Or he didn't decide. He just wasn't moved to uh, share that realization. There's lots of speculation about why. Maybe he didn't think people were ready. Some, Some of the sutras he's cited as saying he didn't think anyone else could understand this. Of course, his realization, the content of his realization was um, everyone is already enlightened. So that's part of the, maybe the reason for not telling people, because he saw that everybody already had all the material supports, mind, breath. And then he went to find the five seekers that he had traveled with before his awakening, before sitting down, and gave them a teaching that resulted in their immediate freedom from, uh, from obscurations. They immediately woke up on hearing this teaching. And what was the teaching? The Four Noble Truths. And apparently, that is a bit of a uh, misordering of the words. It, because now it sounds like the truths themselves are, are, no, are noble, and in a way they have become noble just because they're so important. But the, some people say the correct order of those words is that, is that it's the four truths for noble ones, meaning advanced people. So it's four truths for people whose minds are already ready to hear this. 
for me that's extremely interesting and extremely important. So that's a little bit what I want to talk about today. It's why these four truths are so important. Not why, but we'll just talk about them and we'll, we'll see and open up. So the four truths are, there is suffering. There is a cause of suffering, there's cessation of suffering, and there's the path. So there is suffering, and the Buddha just listed apparently to the, actually he just said those four truths with a little bit of elaboration to his five companions, and that was enough. They immediately woke up, that's it. We're able to drop our clinging to a self, that's it. Um, but to a few other people, he elaborated more on what suffering is. He said that suffering is pain, mental distress, uh, not having with you the, the ones you love, being forced to associate with those you don't love, and not getting what you want. So those are terrible sufferings. They really are. And they're so terrible that they distract us from the path. It's not, that, that's the truth. Those are sufferings. And in the, the six realms, which is a description of, of states that we can be born into, which for me is, is very useful. I like thinking about the six realms a little bit in terms of where we find ourselves in this life, but also this is really about where we can be reborn if we're, we're uh, not careful. <laughs> so the six realms, there are three lower realms, which is uh, hell, states of hell, and there are hell, terrible hells in Buddhism, really terrible descriptions of terrible things happening to people for a long time. One of the stories of the Buddha in his past lives was that he was in a hell, and terrible things were happening to um, somebody else in the hell, and the Buddha in that past life, he wasn't yet the Buddha, stood in front of that person to prevent whoever the demon was in that hell from torturing them a little bit more. And because of that, the Buddha died in that hell and was reborn in a higher state. So there's stories like that to encourage us. <laughs> but the hell realms are terrible. And we, we can sort of see corollaries in our world. We see people in hellish states. But these are even worse than that. The next realm is uh, hungry ghosts. So hungry ghosts are beings who are unsatisfied. They're unremembered. They're unthought of. They're uncared for. So when we offer incense, it's one of the ways to feed those who are abandoned. Have no, they, they have no feet. They're just wispy beings that are, uh, again, abandoned, unthought of, uncared for, nobody remembers them. They didn't care for their own lives, they weren't cared for, they didn't care for others, and they're hungry ghosts with no connections. So hopefully with the communication, they're drawn to, um, to Buddhist altars, they're drawn by incense, and hopefully that nourishment allows them to be reborn in a better state eventually, because the teachings of our, our way, Zen, are that eventually everyone wakes up to this and everyone's, everyone 
is reborn and is Buddha. The next realm is the animal realm, which is considered very unfortunate. We all love, most of us love animals, dogs and cats and all animals, but they are, uh, they're fearful. They're preyed upon. They're not in charge of their existence. They are uh, targeted and they're unprotected. So it's not considered a very safe place to be reborn. We have a cat that showed up. Michael, you have to come back to Houston Zen Center and see this little cat. She showed up several months ago, you know how cats do, winding around the legs of people who are trying to walk into the center. Like if you were arriving here, there's this cat winding around your legs and looking up at you and meowing, let me in, let me in. And we were cold-hearted for a while, and we knew she was going around to other houses and doing the same thing, so we thought, she'll find a happy home, we'll ignore her. And then she was coming over, I live right next door in the, on the property, you know, and um, I looked at her and I realized she's telling us she already lives here. She lives here. And so now for the last few months, she really does live there. <laughs> And I think she was a bad nun in a former life. <laughs> now she's expiating. She's so quiet. I have pictures which I can share with you that one of our members took. She, she likes to sit on my cushion when I'm not there. She's sitting there with this kind of cold, green-eyed look. So, animal realm. And Mary Carol's son, Ben, is very nice. He, he started at the center when he was so small that he would he would read under the table while his mom was meditating. He put a blanket over his head. And now he's very kind. He's, he won't kill a, an insect. He moves them off and asks them to join the army of those who will eventually protect him when he's in need. So he brushes off his little insects and says, Welcome to the army. Welcome to the army. Thinking of the future, he does not. Ben does not meditate, but his practice he understands the importance of these relationships. Then there's the uh, human realm, the fighting titan realm, and the god realm. And the human realm is considered the most auspicious because here we can hear the teachings. We can literally hear the teachings, we can activate those three requisites. We can go and find a center, recognize a teacher, we can work with our minds, and we can uh, cultivate material supports for ourselves and for others, and for all creatures. I'll say more in a minute, but then the fighting titans are a higher realm because they're they have some control over their lives, but they're so, um, uh, what would you call it, controlled by their own anger and feelings that they can't help but cause more trouble. And there's a Buddha in each of these realms, and that Buddha, the Buddha in the Fighting Titan realms, they all have an implement of some kind. The Buddha in that realm has a sword. So it's like even the Buddha has to be armed in the realm of the fighting titans. They're so overcome by their anger and their rage and their jealousy and their sense of self, basically. And then the god realm, for me this again is 
you can see analogies in our world, people who are so rich that they skate adjacent to our worlds but don't really look like they're actually in our worlds. They don't actually have to deal with some of the problems. In San Francisco, the people who work at some of the um, tech firms, you know, they have their own special buses, but they use the city's <coughs> buses, the bus stops. They use the city's bus stops that everybody in the city is taxed to pay for, but they scoot in with their little immaculate buses and pick up tech workers and take them down to their working place. It's generated a lot of bad feeling. Because we don't even have to sit next to you on a bus. We don't have to wait for a bus like you do. Very bad feeling in the God realm on earth. In the God realm, as described in the sutras, it's a very long life, and it's considered not as um, beneficial as being born a human because you can't, you don't hear the teachings, you lose track, you're distracted by all this incredible pleasure, and it lasts a long time. So these realms, like the Googleplex and all of those, seem to be lasting a long time, but they will change. And in the God realm also, after a long, 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 long time, the uh, gods, come, their lifespan comes to an end. So, when your lifespan comes to an end in a hell realm, hopefully some of the bad karma has been expiated and you're reborn in a less bad hell, or in the animal realm. The animal realm, uh, we know the suffering there, Fighting Titans, we know the suffering of anger. All of us know the suffering of anger and jealousy and not getting enough. Uh, the human realm, we'll say more about the suffering of the human realm, but the God realm. When, the God, when a God in the God realm starts to come to an end of his or her lifespan, uh, the flowers are on their flower garlands around their necks start to wilt and they start to feel perspiration on their faces, and they start to feel physically uncomfortable for the first time in a long, 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 long life, and they know they've wasted their time. They haven't worked with their minds. They've just been uh, swimming and, and floating in pleasure. They have not worked with their minds, and they say, it's said in the sutras, that's the worst suffering of all. The worst, the most torment of all is when a god in the god realm realizes they've just wasted this incredibly long lifespan and there's nowhere to go but down. They, could, they can't be reborn as a Buddha, they've wasted their time. Isn't that interesting? So... Human suffering is one kind, but that the God's suffering is so incredibly great. I find that kind of moving. So, this open and flexible mind that the Buddha advises us to cherish and to see as one of our material supports, what does the Buddha tell us to do? What did he tell those nobles, those highly advanced meditators to do? To look at suffering. Mm -hmm turn toward the suffering and study it. For me, it's easy to think that um, I like reading this um, 
little famous poem about oneness and non-duality, but this is still the mind that turns toward the actual conditions of our life. Can we turn toward the momentary suffering of our life? Buddha said, this is kind of a hard Buddhist teaching, that we know suffering as suffering, but also from the strict Buddhist teaching, keep your minds open and flexible. Pleasure is also suffering because we know, like the gods, it won't last. So the other side of it, understanding impermanence, is also a form of suffering. Not bad suffering, but it's a form of suffering. And then neutrality, there is no real neutrality. It's either suffering or going to be suffering. It's kind of a harsh teaching, but as we see in the God realm, we need something to turn us toward actually working with the conditions of our life. Our, the human, born as we are in the human realm, the clinging to our sense of self is so incredibly strong, so uh, genetically determined that to turn away from it even a little bit is extremely hard. We're right there, clinging to this sense of self. Everything else changes, but I'm still here. No, we're in this flow also. We also are completely changing. And it's not just the obvious things like whether we have bad health or good health or moods. We're completely changing our, our, our structure all the time and still calling it a self. For Shakyamuni Buddha, the turning away from that clinging, the ability to turn away from that and to really study suffering led to complete and total liberation through a, a series of moral activities that we call the, the Eightfold Path. View, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration, or samadhi. And mindfulness um, for the Buddha is really important, that quality of mindfulness, which is why there are only eight things on the path, and mindfulness is one of them. And the, the oldest uh, word for mindfulness is smirti, now we say sati. And mindfulness for the Buddha in the early scriptures has the quality of, it means memory. It's memory. And so for the Buddha, what we do when we sit down and are meditating in mindfulness, first we cultivate calming mind, serenity, shamatha, and then we allow mindfulness of our mental states. So we cultivate awareness of our mental states. And that mindfulness is memory. So we remember what's happening. We remember our mental states and we assess them. 
So using this faculty of mindfulness, we judge our states of mind. And for the Buddha, the uh, effort there is to take those mental states and really look clearly at them, at the ones that are associated with either causing us suffering or causing us to ignore suffering or causing us to see clearly which ones are wholesome or causing us to be extremely unclear. So the Buddha is saying, in that open and flexible mind, we have some housekeeping to do. We have major housekeeping to do in that mind. Last night, Colin and I, the Venerable Colin, thank you so much for inviting me here and hosting me. We had a great dinner last night. We walked around that really amazing park over there. And luckily, with the faculty of Smirti, he remembered the weather forecast, and so we had umbrellas because it was really nice, but when we got out of dinner, it was like cats and dogs. And when we were in there, we had a nice conversation. I think, did we talk about mindfulness then or later? I think that was later. Later. And as we were, we got up to leave after a delicious soup, and we got to um, the counter. I meditated on this this morning. I brought it, it came to mind. And with the faculty of sati and smriti, I, I, I looked at all the elements of this event for the wholesomeness and unwholesomeness that was present. I didn't say, this is a terrible thing to do, you're thinking in zazen. I did what actually the Buddha said to do. I applied mindfulness to this memory that came up. And I'm mindful, I was mindful of the mindfulness, and then I looked at it wholesomely and unwholesomely assessed it, and I thought, would I do it differently? And actually, I really liked that episode that we had. We got to, we got up to pay, um, and another woman was there getting ready to pay our same beautiful young uh, server, and they were having a dialogue, and Colin and I, really, we just stood there totally attentive to what was happening, really attentive. And we didn't intervene. We could have, but I think we were just totally attentive. And the dialogue that was going on was the um, woman who was getting ready to leave after her delicious meal was saying, give Queenie a break. And I thought, hmm, yeah, give Queenie a break. And the um, young server was saying, you knew when you came in here that you didn't have the money to pay. And Queenie said, yeah, Queenie has no money. Queenie has no money. And the young woman said, well, I'm going to have to pay for you. I mean, it's going to come out of my, my whatever. I have to pay for that. And she said, give Queenie a break. And there was another person who worked in the restaurant there too, and Colin and I were standing there right next to it, like this close, while all of this was unfolding. And the, our young server had some emotion, but not major, just enough to express the shock. And then I think the server said, okay, just leave. And so Queenie smiled and left. <laughs> and then 
Then Colin and I simultaneously stepped forward and said, we'll pay for her. I didn't have my wallet, so I was volunteering with Colin. <laughs> he was volunteering too. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Don't, you don't have to do that, I'll pay. And he said, no, no, we want to pay. And she said, oh, no, you can't do that. And the other server basically said, she's not really going to have to pay. But they didn't, the, the server said, no, 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 it's okay, I want to pay. So we were fighting over who's going to pay for Queenie's meal. It was so lovely. <laughs> and then finally, Colin left a tip equivalent to her meal, probably. She didn't want to accept any money. And then we walked out. And then we completely forgot about it, basically, because it, it had no residue. But it came up during Zazen because it's one of those moral episodes of a life. And you have a choice, but the, our choices come out of our training from past events, what you're going to do. And I was really proud of us. We just stood there waiting to see what needed to be done, what was needed to be done. And then at the right time, we acted. I felt very good about that. Then the rest of the characters in our little play that we had last night go off and live their own karmic existences. But I feel that the two servers especially, uh, we got to decharge it a little bit for them because they saw something fairly uh, difficult to deal with and then they saw kindness right after. So I feel, I feel good about what we did. But we, none of us said anything mean about the person who left. So that karma wasn't generated either. So that was my first meditation period this morning. And the, uh, the encouragement of the Buddha and all the Zen people to work with our minds, for me, that's one of the flavors that it takes. To work with the mind. Don't just let it sit there and... Um, what these things are. <laughs> we, neither in, we work with it to, in order to allow it to have some peace. So how can we turn toward every moment in, with that same flavor, turn toward the suffering of everything, turn toward the activity of our life with the same uh, determination to work with the mind? I was reading in the Book of Serenity uh, recently, as I often do, and Yangshan was a great Chinese Zen master a little more than a thousand years ago, and one night he dreamed that he went up to Tushita Heaven, where Maitreya Buddha, the next Buddha, they say there's a Buddha waiting to come down, he waits until all the teachings of Shakyamuni have faded from memory, and then we need another Buddha. Because as long as we have a Buddha's teachings here, we don't need a Buddha. We, get, we refer to those teachings and we try to peel away all of our misunderstanding. So Yangshan dreamed that he went to Tushita Heaven and he sat in the second seat, like Colin was right there. That would be Maitreya's seat. And then Yangshan dreamed he was sitting in the second seat, which is where I sat. And he, was, he came to listen to Maitreya Buddha. Maitreya Buddha, Maitreya means love. So the coming Buddha is love. And then an elder in the community stood up and said, today it's the person in the second seat's time to preach. 
and that's the koan. So you go and listen to a Dharma talk, and then you find out, today, it's your time to teach. So for me, that also has the quality, every moment is the time to teach. Every time we go for a meal in the uh, in that delicious restaurant, or the restaurant with the delicious food, there's a time to teach. All of our action is teaching. Ben, Mary Carol's son, just lifting off the bugs in front of all of his tech friends is teaching. But the Buddha was really extremely radical, unusual. And I, I want to read a poem that a Tibetan <coughs> teacher, his name is Chogdul, I think, wrote about the, the Buddha. He said, uh, he wrote it down. This is to the Buddha, part of, a po- part of the poem. To the sharp weapons of the demons, you offered delicate flowers in return. When the enraged Devadatta pushed down a boulder, you practiced silence. Son of the Shakyas, incapable of casting even an angry glance at your enemy, what intelligent person would honor you as protector from fearful samsara? Or another translation is, what person in their right mind would take refuge in you? (laughs) (laughs) So that first line, to the sharp weapons of the demons, you offered delicate flowers in return. So that refers to uh, one of the Knights of Enlightenment, Mara came and and, uh, brought all of his armies to try to knock the Buddha off of his path, prevent him from settling. And one of the uh, one of the armies sent arrows, so they were shooting arrows at the Buddha, and the Buddha just sat there. And as they hit the realm of what I don't know, his aura, they turned into flowers. So often there are pictures of flowers falling down on the Buddha because the arrows, boom. So to the sharp weapons of the demons, you offered delicate flowers in return. When the enraged Devadatta pushed down a boulder, you practiced silence. So Devadatta was the Buddha's cousin, and very jealous, kind of an angry, uh, fighting titan kind of person. Very jealous, tried to convince his Sangha to turn away from him, and often tried to hurt him. So one time he he pushed a got up on a hillside, and the Buddha was sitting down below, and pushed a boulder over the edge and it bounced down and it it uh, nicked, as it went by, it nicked the Buddha's toe and the Buddha bled. So those are two, Those the karmic weight of those would get Devadatta into a hell. He's probably still there, actually, but he'll be reborn, causing a Buddha to bleed and causing a split in the Sangha, both very um, bad bad deeds. So, and then son of the Shakyas, incapable of casting even an angry glance at your enemy. What person in their right mind would go to you as a protector from fearful samsara? What person would take refuge in your teaching? 
So that is an acknowledgement of how really radical this practice is to turn away, to turn away from uh, self-protection all the time, to turn away from reacting in anger all the time, to turn away from revenge, really super radical and really hard to do, even in minor ways. So again, that's why that example last night for me was so uh, refreshing to find examples in our own daily life when we, we find ourselves turning away from getting angry at something, turning away from being vengeful, even to a lie. We didn't even become allies with the person in criticism of, of another person. We just tried to help that person. So those are very radical acts. And I really think that people in their right minds do look for refuge in that kind of behavior. I think our open and flexible minds, that is what we want to see. We want to see, I feel, turning away from all those easy ways to handle suffering. Thank you all very much. Do we discuss now? If we want to. It's about 3 to 11. I think we have time for a couple of questions. We have the Zazen instructions starting a little bit closer in the structure. We have time for a couple of questions. Are there any comments or questions? Heather, thank you for coming. Due to a programming error, I have to go uh, meet a patient oh. <laughs> who was able to make an appointment when I don't usually. But I wanted to thank you for coming and for bringing up the Chain Compassion mm -hmm. book for the practice period. I encourage everyone to read it. It's a very interesting and uh, fruitful book. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I would have said more about it, but I got on to something else that was interesting, but uh, that Training and Compassion book it, that we've been studying in the practice period, it starts off with um, uh, resolve to begin and then, and then uh, train in the um, uh, first principles, which are to remember the, our precious life, and do you remember what the others are? The um, inevitability of death. And karma is our only possess, true possession, and the impermanence of everything, I think, uh, which are, I want to point out, luckily those are number one and number two, and, and I just say that uh, Buddhist practice is not always about stress reduction, it's often about stress induction. So those things actually raise the level of stress, and the God living in the God realm where there is no stress until you finally realize that you've wasted all of your time is the opposite of what our practice is. So stress, I'm kind of a big fan of stress these days. I'm not. <laughs> well, there are different kinds of stress, just like there are different kinds of suffering. Do you have to run out right now? I do. I'm okay. so sorry. Thank you for taking care of somebody. Oh no, be bold. <laughs> I'm about to walk out wearing red, so okay.
Gerald. Thank you for coming and uh -huh. teaching. Uh, just a quick thought. Uh, this is a wonderful time to apply some of the teaching in the situation we're living in. Look at the eating news on one side, the other side, conflict. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I find, very helpful, although I just do it maybe 5% of the time, to, to, to try to you know, stay in the middle and uh, uh, we have, have good thoughts for both sides. Yeah. Obviously, I have my own opinion, but uh, like I say, uh, if you can, uh, give thanks for living in a wonderful time for practice. <laughs> That's very good. Thank you. Yes. Somebody recently said to me that um, the they were really worried because the the divisiveness or the trying to suppress various religions was so strong now, and what immediately came to mind were were some very relevant historical events where you know we've been doing this for a long time, we've been trying to suppress each other's religions for a long time. So hopefully, we're gonna we're learning more about what we're up to. Thank you. Yes.